ask if you will to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Sorry, we did not get on the same page this week. And Kevin uh, chose a song that didn't fit with our theme too well. <laughs> we look at Acts and see how the Lord builds his church. Thankful for Pastor Kevin and all the worship team as they lead us every week. Three services and I get to sit in all of them. Really thankful for him and for Scott both and everybody in part, a part of it. I want to pick up in Acts chapter 4. Picking up right where we left off at the end of chapter 3. In fact, it says at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, as they were speaking. And so it kind of puts us right in the midst of this event and this moment. And just a reminder, Peter and John had gone to the temple that day and they saw the lame man from birth. And instead of the silver and gold that he often asked for in the name of Jesus they heal him and he's up and he's walking and now this healing, this sign that comes becomes a testimony that can be launched into this proclamation of the gospel. And so as we look at this passage ending in chapter 3 with Peter speaking in the temple, now he is going to be confronted by some of the leadership of the, of the Israelites. And so here in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, I want to read through verse 22 to follow on with me, if you will. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident in all the inhabitants of, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege this morning of proclaiming your word. And just as we see this passage, God, and as we come to it, may we be encouraged by the stance that Peter and John take now so as to to encourage us, Father, to take the same stance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us this day, Father, for your glory and for your name we pray. Amen. If we are to examine church history and just a a cursory glance looking throughout church history, we will find that it is littered with men and women, women making bold statements concerning Jesus in the face of great danger. Just a, a few stories that I love. One, Perpetua was a, a lady of noble character, and her slave Felicity was there. Perpetua and Felicity, they together joined in because they both trusted in Christ. A noble woman and a slave, it shouldn't be. They shouldn't mix, but they both trusted Christ, and they were together. And because of this, it threatened those around them. And so Perpetua and Felicity were told that they must recant their faith or perish by the beast. In other words, they'll be thrown into the, to the cage with wild beasts so as to be torn apart unless they recant the name of Jesus. And the story goes of how Perpetua and Felicity, noble woman and slave, held hands together, united in Christ. And as they are going in, asked one more time to recant, Perpetua said, neither can I call myself anything else than what I am. I am a Christian. She was led in to be killed along with Felicity. Or Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Rid- Ridley, another great name, other great names in church history. Because of their faith, they were set to be burned at the stake, tied up and put there, given one more opportunity, given one more opportunity to recant their faith before they set the flames of fire. Hugh Latimer looked at Nicholas Ridley. And he said, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. And there, they were set afire. And it was true. One of the greatest revivals in English times was brought about by their death. Or, we've discussed before Martin Luther, who stood before the emperor, the strongest man, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and was told to recant his faith, forget about everything he wrote, and tell them you were wrong. And Luther stood before the emperor in front of a packed house at the Diet of Worms. And he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. God, help me. All three of these knew their life was in danger. All three of these knew that opposition was great. And all three of them chose to take a stand for Christ Jesus in the face of great opposition. Now, I don't know about you, but all of those are inspiring to me. When faced with certain death, they're bold enough to proclaim what they knew to be true and not go back on it. And when we come to our chapter here in Acts chapter 4, Peter becomes the first instance of this great boldness in the faith, if you will. For the first time since Pentecost, after the resurrection of Christ, one of the believers of God has been brought forward again and put to the trial. 
Great opposition has arisen. And this opposition begins here in chapter 4, and it's going to continue. At the end of chapter 2, it tells us that they had favor with all men, but that's over now. Now, the opposition is going to come. It's going to rise until they stone Stephen in chapter 7. It's going to rise until they persecute James and put him to death. It's going to rise until they throw Paul in prison over and over again. The persecution's only going to come more and more. And Peter sets the example in our passage of how we face such great opposition. He becomes the example for all the rest of church history, how we face these things, because Peter is standing before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, Caiaphas is the one who had plotted to kill Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, all of the men gathered together to put Jesus to death, right? They had to figure out how they would end this one called Jesus. They all plotted together, and it says in Matthew 26 that they got together in Caiaphas' living room, in his house. They schemed for 30 pieces of silver to buy off one of the disciples. They schemed to get him to Pilate because they knew that they couldn't put him on a cross. That had to be a Roman governor to do that. Pilate could pull this off. They schemed the whole plan in Caiaphas' living room. And now Peter stands before that one, Caiaphas. And what would Peter do? He'd already started in the temple. In fact, there's a little bit of me, though I can't prove it from the text, so this is a little bit of Josh right here. There's a little bit of me that wants to make the argument that Peter knew exactly what he was doing. Peter had circled this day on his calendar. Peter was ready for this moment, this time. He was provoking them by standing in the middle of the temple and said, you killed the author of life, but God made him alive. So repent and believe. And as they heard that, they stepped up. And what do we learn then? Peter, stepping up to this moment, filled with the Spirit, armed with the gospel. What can we learn from Peter's stance and witness to the gospel? What can we learn from that today? There's a few things I do want us to see from this passage. First, we must know that the gospel is always provocative. The gospel is always provocative. You've heard me say over and over again that when the gospel's proclaimed, it demands a response. That's what I mean when I say it's provocative. It prom- provokes us to something. We have to respond to it. We can't just let it lie. We can't just leave it to the side. It starts in Acts chapter 2 after they began to preach and teach. It says that some were amazed and perplexed by this, but others mocked. Some believed, others made fun of them, it tells us. In chapter 3, it tells us in verse 11 that the people saw what Peter and John were saying and this one who'd been raised, uh, who was lame and now is healed, and they were utterly astounded. But now in our passage in chapter 4, verse 2, it tells us that these Sadducees come up and they are greatly annoyed. The gospel's always going to bring a response from amazement to mockery to astoundment, or I don't even know how you do astoundment in that form, to being astounded by it, to being annoyed by it. Always there's something. It's always provoking us to one or the others. The leaders that arrested Jesus as it tells us, were the Sadducees. And you may think that they are the same as the Pharisees, but you'd be wrong. Two different groups. Surely they are united in opposition to Jesus, but they're motivated by different beliefs. The Sadducees were a smaller group, but they were the ones in power. 
The Sadducees were smaller, but they were in power. And one of their core beliefs is that they rejected all of the scriptures except for the first five books of the Old Testament. That's all they held on to, the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's it. And they believed that nowhere in those books can you find teaching on the resurrection. So they were very clear to say there is no such thing as a resurrection. Very clear. And you can see that's why they were upset. There's no such thing as a resurrection. In fact, this is how they tried to catch Jesus. It was this kind of uh, conversation that spurned them to want to put Jesus to death because they come to Jesus they come to Jesus in Luke chapter 20, and they, they, they start asking him, uh, when we get to heaven after the resurrection, how, do you marry the one you were married before? Do you find another husband or wife? Who do you get married to? And this was a trick question because they didn't believe in the resurre resurrection. But Jesus, being who he is, looked at them and said, huh, who did you say, who did you say was the God of the Old Testament, of the first five books? They said the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Yes. Well, he's the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. Surely if he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you must know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they are not alive on earth, they are with him now because he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And he stumped them, but he makes them mad. And so here's where they begin to pull out that opposition all the more because of this teaching on the resurrection. They argued there was none, and Jesus proves, even by their own logic, that they were wrong. And here's what the Sadducees believed. They believed in their scheming they had won. They came up with a plan. They put Judas on their side, give him some money, he betrays him. They get him cast off to Pilate to get him on the cross. They prepare uh, this idea here. To, they, they plant people in the crowd to scream out, crucify him, whenever they, they ask for Barabbas or Jesus. They, they have this plan to put Jesus to death, to end him, because they don't agree with his teaching. They don't agree with what he's saying, and they are against him. He threats, he's a threat to their power. And so ultimately, they put him on the cross, and they believe they win. They believe it worked. They believe it was, it was perfect. He was crucified according to their plan in their idea. Jesus is dead, it's over, and now we don't have to deal with him anymore. But they have a problem. There's no body in the grave. The problem becomes for them on the third day when they hear tell about the fact that he's not in there anymore and his disciples start saying he's alive. And then the buzz starts spreading around that not only he's alive, his spirit is now dwelling within his people. And they're telling everybody that Jesus, who you killed, is now made alive. And in Acts 3, we see this. And so their problem is, their problem is their plan has been thwarted by the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when the resurrection is proclaimed, now they're upset. But Peter makes it clear. Peter makes it clear. You killed the author of life. God raised him up again. Now, why do they disbelieve? I don't know. There's many reasons for people not to believe. I think here with the Sadducees, you can see a few of those. One, they disbelieve because it's contradictory to their own beliefs. They believe something different than the gospel, than what the gospel teaches. So therefore, they believe they're right over against the truth of the gospel. They believe they're right over against what, what Peter is saying. So they don't believe because they have contradictory beliefs. But they also don't believe because this is disruptive to their lifestyle itself. If we were to believe in Jesus, they're thinking, then that would change our position of influence and power. 
If we're to believe in Jesus, then we would recognize that we're not the ones in charge. We're not the ones who rule and reign. It's, it's, it's him that does that. And we have to bow to him. It would be disruptive to their lifestyle. And if that's the case then, if they believe in Jesus, then, then they no longer would be their own authority. They would have to sit under his authority. They would have to answer to another. They like their position and influence and power. Why is it that, that many people don't believe? I think in some ways it boils down to the same things. It may be contradictory to what you have been taught growing up. It may be contradictory to what you have built your life on, your belief system. The gospel may be contradictory to that, so you don't believe. Or it definitely can disrupt your lifestyle. You've got it the way you like it. Everything's like how, just how you want it. You've got your life doing what you want. But then you come along with the gospel and say there's actually somebody else you have to answer to and put yourself under in their authority. And you don't want to change how you live. You don't want to change how you act. You don't want to change that. You've got it made just as it is. But the claims of the gospel are not ones you can just leave alone. Whatever the case may be, they're provocative. They're forcing you to deal with them. If this is true, then, then, then you have to do something with it. If it's not, then you've got to reject it. And just like the Sadducees, not only do they reject it, they're trying to stamp it out, put Jesus to death. And now his disciples are proclaiming him that he's alive. We got to put them out too. We got to stamp them out too. And running as a theme throughout Acts is this opposition to the truth of the gospel because it goes against their very beliefs, their lifestyle. It goes against their own authority. And so they're going against it. I remember the first time I preached in another country. I had to preach with an interpreter. Preached in Russia, late 1900s. Young. I was 20 years old. And I walked in and they said, here, you got to preach. The room was packed. And I uh, looked around. It was a small room, but it was full. Everybody in the little village from the little town we were in had come. And I began to preach, and I just shared the simple gospel. That's all I knew. I'm going to get up and tell them about Jesus. I got up and told them about Jesus, and I got to the place where I called them to repent and believe. You've got to repent and believe. And when I said, you're a sinner, and you must repent of your sins and turn to Christ, every single man in the room got up and walked out. You want to talk about disrupting the service. I looked at the interpreter and said, what would you say? You made him mad. And he looked at me and he said, they have much pride. You see, the gospel had provoked something within them. It provoked their own pride, their own authority, their own position. And when they were confronted with it, they got up and walked out. But before we think that that's just them and that place and that's time, how often does that happen even in this room and in this space? You come in here and you may be checking a box, somebody may have brought you, but when the preacher gets up and starts preaching the gospel and calls for repentance and faith, you check out in your mind because the gospel will disrupt your life. The gospel will change how you see things. The gospel will, will force you to come be confronted with truth that you don't like to deal with, with things you don't want to deal with. You just want to brush them under the rug because it provokes something within you. And when the gospel provokes you, it's going to provoke you to some action. Either you get up and you leave, or you stand firm and you believe. That's what we find here in Acts. But not only do we see that the gospel provokes to some action over against opposition, 
We also want to see something else. The gospel always progresses. It always provokes. It always progresses. And what I mean by that, it is constantly advancing, even in the face of opposition. This is another clear theme that's going through the book of Acts. God's purposes will not be stifled even when the strongest of leaders seek to end his purposes. You hear what I'm saying? God's purposes cannot be thwarted or stifled. They cannot be stopped. All the way through this, you see it. Verse three, it says it here. Here, the Sadducees, the strongest ones, they had the authority to put Peter and John in prison, and so they did. They didn't like what they were proclaiming about the resurrection from the dead in Jesus' name, so they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day. It provoked them to opposition to the gospel so as to stamp Peter and John out. Yet, notice what verse 4 says. And verse 4, I think, is no accident here. Luke could have put this at the end of the chapter and just kind of did a summary of what's happening. But notice what verse 4 says. They're thrown in prison, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Notice back in chapter 2, it tells us that there were 3,000 souls saved that day that joined the church. But here he says something different. He says the number of men came to about 5,000. Luke is making a statement. He's drawing a picture here for us to see. The only time those kind of uh, language would be used and numbers would be given is if you're referring to an army. You were measured by your power, by how great your army is, and you measured how great your army was by how many thousands you had. And so here, Luke is saying, while the opposition was rising up against Peter and John and all of those those who believe God was also raising up an army of those who follow him and pursue after him. He's raising them up. His strength is seen in the numbers of hearts that have been changed and lives that have been changed. In other words, they're trying to end this, but it's only growing. They're trying to put Peter and John out, but his gospel is only going forward more and more. The Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but they could not arrest the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says it to Timothy that way when Paul's in prison. He says, Timothy, I may be in chains, but the gospel's not in chains. You can't hold back the gospel. Luke, when writing this book of Acts, was likely aware of the fate of Peter. Peter takes such center stage here at the beginning. Luke, when he's writing this, is likely aware of the fact that Peter was killed as a martyr for the faith. Surely he was aware of that, but he didn't, he didn't tell us. He figures so prominently in here. Why didn't he tell us that in the book of Acts? Or Paul, after chapter 9, Paul becomes center stage, if you will. You have a couple chapters where Peter and Paul work some differences out with Gentiles and Jews, and then Paul takes off, and we follow him on his missionary journeys, and we follow him through his arrest and appeals all the way up, and he gets to Rome. Why does Luke not tell us that in Rome, finally and completely, Paul was killed for the faith, martyred for the faith? Why does he do this? No mention of it anywhere. And I think the reason is clear. This book, the book of Acts, is not a biography of Peter and Paul. It's not, it's not a biography of their life. This is about the advancement of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, as we get to the last verse of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison, and you may think this situation is dire. But in fact, it turns it, and it says, while he's in prison, the gospel went forward without hindrance and with all boldness. That's how it ends. The book ends with the gospel going forward. Even in the face of great opposition, you cannot stop the gospel. Think of the Sadducees themselves. They thought their plan worked. 
They thought it worked. They thought they put Jesus to death. They come up with a plan in Caiaphas' house, and it worked. We got it. And what does Peter say? Peter looks at him in the face. This Jesus whom you crucified, you made a ruling. You are the authorities in Israel. You are the ones that can arrest people and put them to death. You are the judges, if you will. You made a ruling. God overruled your ruling. This one whom you crucified, God made alive. You think you got power here? You think your plan is working? In fact, it's the opposite. It's true, Sadducees. You've only been carrying out the plan of God from the beginning to, the, to now. You see, ultimately, as Paul tells us in Rome, that the, to the Lord, his enemies shall become his footstool. What does that mean other than the fact that his enemies will finally and completely serve him? They may come with all the opposition they can try, but they can only carry out the plans of God for them. You thought you won, Sadducees? You're only fulfilling what God had promised from the beginning. Here we see that though the gospel comes and provokes people to opposition, it cannot be stopped. And if that's the case then, if the gospel cannot be stopped, whatever they may do to it, if we understand that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it, if that's the case, therefore the gospel must always be proclaimed. It must always be proclaimed. And who is to proclaim it? You may say, well, you've got to have certain position and credentials, but that's not what's said here. What's said here in chapter 4, verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. In other words, Peter and John standing before them, the Sadducees, they had earned all these degrees, if you will. They had had all their certificates. They had everything you need. Their credentials were lined up. But these men come up, and how dare they stand before them in boldness, being uneducated and common? How dare they do that? The astonishment here is not like, wow, that's incredible. That's pretty cool. The astonishment here is how dare they come before us? These are uneducated and common men. How dare they step before us who are the experts of the law and the truth? But that's exactly, that's exactly who proclaims the gospel. It's not those who have credentials hanging on the wall. It's those who have two credentials, and they're here in the text. The first, whenever they ask Peter to question, and Peter, by the way, has been waiting on this question. They ask Peter a question, what power, what name did you do this? But listen to what it says. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Y'all got that? Don't skip over that. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Y'all remember Acts 2, the Spirit came. Peter preached there, he preached in 3, and now he's coming back at you in 4. And what is the common denominator of all of this? Not that Peter was some educated man that had earned all his credentials. The common denominator in all of this was that the Spirit of God has come and filled him with power. Power like he has never experienced before. And now, now he's ready to proclaim Jesus because his credentials aren't hanging on a wall. His credentials are found in his heart. That's what it says here. In fact, when it comes to this, they shouldn't be surprised. Matthew 
gospel records Jesus' words, and it's almost like Jesus is explaining this situation exactly. He says, behold, I'm sending you out. He's talking to his disciples. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus calls them out and says, look, here's what's going to happen. And he's explaining Acts chapter 4. But you know when it's time for you to speak, the Spirit will speak through you. Your confidence, Peter, is not in the learned words you may have. Your confidence, Peter, is not in, 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 in anything you may have, have, have put your mind to before. Your confidence is found in the Spirit of God that dwells in you. So speak, and he'll speak through you. Those of us who are children of God, who've been born again, who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, our confidence in our witness is found in that truth. And just as the Lord God said to his disciples, he's saying to us, don't worry about what you're going to say when you stand before others. Proclaim the good news through the power of the Spirit. But notice the second credential, and they go together. The second credential is not just he had the Spirit of God within him. The second credential is found in verse 13 at the end. As they look at these uneducated men, common men, it says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I like that verse. What did they notice about these men? What made them uncommon, if you will? It was the fact that they had been with Christ. This is exactly the same thing that was said to Peter on the night Jesus was betrayed. They said, haven't you been with Jesus? They recognized that he was one of the disciples. And he said, no, but not this time. This time, Peter says, absolutely, that's me. The Spirit of God dwells in him. He has been with Christ Jesus, and that are, those are the credentials he needs to proclaim the name of Jesus to anybody and everybody. But not only that, we see those two credentials. We ask ourselves those two things. Have I been with Jesus? Is the Spirit of God dwelling in me? And if it is, then what do I proclaim? What is it that I must proclaim? The what may be a who here. We proclaim Jesus. Notice what the text says. We proclaim first his resurrection. As verse 10 tells us, we proclaim his resurrection. This one whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the linchpin of Christianity. If he is alive, then Christianity is true. If he is still dead, then Christianity is a lie. Does that make sense? That's what I mean by linchpin. You pull that out. If you take out the resurrection, he's not a good moral teacher because he told us he would die and come back to life. Y'all know what I'm saying? Well, then he was a liar. You can't trust him. If he's still dead, there's no way to, reason to trust Jesus. If he's still dead, he's just like any one of us. But the fact that he's alive proves that everything he said and did is true. And so here's the linchpin. We proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even when people say that's nonsense and hogwash, we still proclaim it because we know it is true in our own very hearts. We're witnesses to this. Peter says, you cannot believe in the resurrection if you want to, Sadducees. What I know is I got to the tomb. Y'all see what I'm saying? What I know is, I, got, I wasn't first. John beat me, but he was scared. I went in first. And Peter said, when I went in, what did I find? An empty tomb. Only to be confronted with a resurrected Savior. 
So here's the truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes Christianity true or false. If you believe that, if you believe that, then you know everything he said and it was true. And what we see throughout scripture, throughout history, is all of us who believe are witnesses to that truth. Witnesses to the fact he's alive, but not only is he alive, he's the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. He quotes Psalm 118, by him, this man standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. In other words, he's the one that all of life is built on. All of your salvation is built upon this truth. All of the promises of God are found in this one. All of the hope that you can profess is found right here. Jesus is the cornerstone by which all of the truth of God's word is built. The Sadducees had accepted the first five books of the Bible. You remember what Jesus said. If you believe Moses, then you believe me because Moses was writing about me. The very testimony of the scripture is Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, resurrected and true. That's the cornerstone by which we are built. We're built on that foundation. But not only that, we're built on the exclusivity of this message. Jesus is the only Savior. Now, this is quite offensive to many, but it's right here. Do y'all see what I'm saying? Before I, I, I go too far, I want to make sure this is clear. Peter steps up in front of everybody and says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter makes a clear statement on the exclusivity of Christ, and that truth, that truth will get you in trouble. Because many people think there's many options to get to heaven. All roads kind of lead there, and you can kind of go your way and this way. The scripture teaches the exact opposite of that. Jesus said it himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And what I'm telling you is you will not find me up here preaching a salvation that can be found in Christ. Jesus is not a savior. No matter how this, vet, this jacket looks, I'm no salesman. I'm not trying to convince you he is one savior over against another. I'm not trying to convince you he's one savior against that savior in a, in a world of many type saviors. I'm not trying to convince you that. In fact, if that was my message, I wouldn't be here. I'd be finding something else to do. I'm not a salesman of the truth of Jesus Christ. I am a witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. And what I stand before you is this. I know in my own heart and in my own life, Jesus is alive. I've seen it through my friends. I've seen it through my family. I bear witness to the truth of his gospel. I know all of that. So I'm not coming up here giving you a savior. I'm giving you the savior. And my encouragement to you is if you look anywhere else, you will be lost and undone. And Peter said, kill me if you want to, but what I'm telling you, your only hope, Sadducees, is if you would turn from your ways, turn from your false beliefs, and trust the one true and living God who is the Savior of the world. That's it. That's your only hope. If we lose the exclusivity of Christ, then we lose the urgency of the gospel. 
If we lose the exclusivity of Christ, we lose the very story of Scripture itself. He's the fulfillment of the promises. He is the hope by which we hold. He is the one who has answered all of the prophets. He's the one who has come to bring redemption to his people. It's Jesus. And if we lose the exclusivity of Christ, we lose Scripture itself. If we lose the exclusivity of Christ, we lose the heart of the gospel. There are not many ways by which you can find salvation. There is one way. And that's by trusting in faith Jesus Christ as Lord. Peter says, tell me if you want to not to preach that. But like a fire raging in my bones, as Jeremiah said, I can do no other. Here is the message. When do we preach it? Everywhere and anytime. Standing before those who can put you to death, Peter says, I'll tell you what I know. Jesus is alive. Standing before those who are your neighbors and friends, anytime, anywhere, proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. We know it will face opposition. We've seen it here, but we also know some will believe. We proclaim the resurrected Christ as the only Savior for the whole world, anywhere, in any time. And that, my friends, is how the Lord will build his church. I remember having watched all the men leave that day when I was preaching. Watched them all, gave them time, y'all go on. I looked at the guy and I said, what do I do now? He said, keep going. All right. And I continued. And that day, seven ladies came forward. Why? Because the gospel always provokes a response. Some will turn and some will leave. But for those seven ladies... By God's grace, why would we stop in the face of opposition? Peter says, I can't stop. Threaten me, tell me, throw me in prison, even kill me. I can't stop. And so may it be with us as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are, for you are God Almighty. And thank you for your son, for he is Savior and Lord. And thank you for your spirit that empowers us to proclaim your message anywhere, anytime. So, Father, make us faithful. And, God, in hearts today, your gospel has provoked a response. And there may be someone here today that always has rejected it, always turned aside. But today, Father, today you shine light into the darkness that they've been living in. And they see that gospel. And they're provoked today, not to turn away from you, but to run to you. God, may that be the case, that everybody in this room runs to you. Father, work and do your work now as you build your church, even as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand together.